it's Tony Chapman, and welcome to Chatter That Matters. In this age of noise, I cut through the chaos and the confusion to focus on what matters most to your life, your career, your community, and our planet. At the beginning of every podcast, I ask an essential question, and then together, we go on a quest to mine for insights and identify the big ideas that will help you get to where you need to go. When I say the name Thomas Edison, you think of electricity, Henry Ford, cars, Oprah Media, Steve Jobs, your iPhone, Bezos, Amazon, and e-commerce. Who are these individuals? These are individuals that made their mark. Their destiny is a matter of choice, not chance. Their journey studied in business schools. These are individuals that identified unmet needs, opportunity, and they leapt in with physical and emotional force. Well, this episode of Chatter That Matters, I interview one of these individuals, Bruce Linton, the founder and former CEO of Canopy Growth. Bruce saw what was happening with the legalization of medical cannabis, and he started to listen to the whispers of pending legislation that will allow recreational cannabis, and he saw it as an opportunity of a lifetime for himself personally and all of Canada. So Bruce, I want to begin by asking you an essential question. I think in this world, we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a great divide and we're seeing people that are making things happen and doing extraordinary things and reinventing and reimagining. And others just kind of watching the world go by. You're clearly one of the people that are making things happen. Share your secrets. Hmm. Good question. I think, um, you know, I'm now over 50 and I've always tried to make things happen, but I probably spent way too much time in prior iterations of me meeting with the people who were experts, advisors, letting them tell me what I th- they thought I should do and then trying to make some combination of all of their inputs to create what I did. And then as I got older, I realized those only worked some of the time and they didn't work really amazing. And so now I listen to a lot of people, um, but then I go and pace up and down a hallway, think about stuff and actually do what I think is the thing to do. And usually when you start off, if it's the right thing to do, of the people disagree with it. And that's because uh, if you're going to do something and create something, you should actually do it where there's an information sort of uh, asymmetry. If everybody thinks it's a good idea, it's probably over. And so I'm now spending a lot more of my time having people scratch their head and wondering why am I involved with hallucinogenic research for humans to potentially have beneficial effects from stuff like LSD and Ibogaine to... um, really get in the deep end of four-legged mammals and what they could do with cannabis and a bunch of other weird combinations. And if you looked at my portfolio, you'd say, good God, there's absolutely nothing in common except most of them are kind of outliers that will be really good ideas in two or three years. But most humans like this sort of herd mentality. They like to chase something that's proven. There's a Sherpa Mm -hmm. leading the pack. You're talking about being a Sherpa. What gives you that confidence and conviction that you're allowed to be a trailblazer versus just someone that's going to follow a well-macheted path? Oh, I think a lot of the people who follow the well-macheted path also went to the really You know, they did their MBA here and they did their undergraduate in science there. Um, They went to a high school where everybody's last name was famous. You know, I think that there's a a lot of security for a lot of people who followed the path to stay on the path. Um, I have none of those trappings. 
And so I don't feel any, um, I almost feel like uh, I'm continuously a bit of an outsider nonetheless. And so um, I don't really spend much time trying to figure out how, where is the path and what I have to do. I just look around and say, like, do I think maybe the media has it wrong or society has it wrong? Because I can tell you, like, starting a cannabis company in late 2012 in Canada was really considered quite a stupid and bad idea. Um, I had a number of people raise an eyebrow when I explained that um, I was putting money in and was about a 10% shareholder in something doing clinical research on all of the prohibited uh, hallucinogenic drugs because they do have an effect on people. You can't deny it. Now, the question is, could they have a therapeutic effect? Um, could the dosage and method of delivery be managed so that if, um, you know, if you had a kid who had um, self-harming depression and I had a solution, would you ask, was this once prohibited? You'd say, thank God for it. Uh, if you had a family member who has ADHD and there's a way to narrow that problem and not use 35-year-old drugs that have really bizarre side effects and low efficacy, I don't think you'd mind that that came out of prohibition was managed properly. So I think there's a whole inversion process to turn it into, as I talked about before, outcomes. People are so captivated about categories of ingredients and rules around ingredients that they lose track of the fact that they could do something. And it's kind of like today's the first anniversary of the management of cannabis for adults in Canada. And I've watched a lot of media this morning. And you know what I kept figuring out was, I think we missed the point. Like there's an $8 billion market in Canada. We've just chipped away the beginning of, and in January more will chip away. But all you have to do is switch people from doing something that's not very safe, not legal, and not really actually beneficial to anyone to a legal supply chain. And you have an $8 billion market just in Canada. So I'm talking with Bruce Linton, and if you haven't heard of him, you've probably been in the dark ages. He will certainly go down, and Canada's long away from going down, but he'll go down to Canada's history book as one of the great pioneers, innovators, and visionaries. And we're talking a little bit about cannabis because it's the first year of legalization. I have to ask you, I mean, Canada, when we were presented with this first mover advantage, uh, tapping into not only the $8 billion Canadian market, but the $80 billion North American market, a ready-made consumer, mm -hmm. insatiable appetite, curiosity, front page headlines, earned media. I mean, everything was going in our favor. But if you have a year later, you have to say, we squandered a lot of that opportunity because we sort of got out of the gate with the private sector's hands tied behind their back. Yeah, to an extent, I would say that um, there were always ways that it could be better, but um, it gave it gave Canadian entrepreneurs uh, probably the first time we've had such a big lead. Like I joke, I think the last time we had this big a lead as a Canadian entity might have been like Alexander making a phone call. Maybe it was some guy figuring out penicillin and not sure what to do with it, but for sure the cannabis platform for regulation uh, formation of capital meaning well capitalized companies compared to anywhere else in the world this is the first time in forever canada's had the lead and we've used that to go to other places that are following us the canadian thing to me is um it's quite remarkable it actually happened right this is the, probably the only file that harper and trudeau 100 percent collaborated on and they didn't know so if not for harper harper made a build decision to make a platform for regulating the production of cannabis so that patients could have access. And that's when I started the business. And uh, if that hadn't happened, Trudeau could have promised to make cannabis available, but there would have been none. There'd be zero supply chain. So the medical platform Harper made extended itself very well to being a bigger platform for what Trudeau wanted. And then they got provinces 
most of them did do an okay job. Some did a great job, like Alberta, Newfoundland. Some took a little longer, like Ontario. But um, on the one-year anniversary, um, they're now nobody's fighting over all these new products coming in. Like, there's going to be all these amazing differentiated products coming in, in January. There's a bit of a discussion about vapes right now because some people have had ill effects from vaping. But if you dig in at all, the ill effects have largely been why we should regulate because almost entirely, and maybe entirely, uh, those people who uh, fell ill or died were buying products from the illicit market that contained all kinds of stupid stuff that results when criminals make products. And so I think um, we got out of the gate. We're still, if you look at the valuation of Canadian companies relative to any on the can- planet, we get much higher valuations. And so now the question is, are the companies going to be boring or bold? Well, let me let me talk a little bit about that because, you know, first of all, it, it, I would suggest that maybe dev- setting the rules out to 10 provinces and three territories uh, 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 sort of disenfranchised. It didn't allow the scale maybe we should have had. Mm. So as you said, some did it well, some are laggers. Or do you think that maybe you send 10 people off in a race and eventually best practice will find one lane? Uh, I think we're getting close to that right now. Like you see, Ontario and Alberta are very similar in terms of the private sector store representation. You're seeing more of that in Newfoundland. You've got it in a bunch of the other uh, provinces. Um, what, what amazes me is I can't think of anything in Canadian history that the feds and provinces actually got done faster and better. Like, you know, I, I don't think we could amend the size of a hockey rink in under 100 years, yet we were somehow unable to unwind prohibition of approximately 100 years and have provinces set up stores through various mechanisms and get going. Um, it is, to me, like, you know, very Canadian that we pound ourselves about it, but there's nobody else on the planet we can copy. Like what the Americans are doing is federally illegal and state by state completely irregular. Um, And it's really ineffective in some states. So if you go to California, there's like 40,000 licensed producers to grow cannabis, but they have not enough cannabis because a lot of it's adulterated and sprayed on and doesn't meet standards. And then as you go east, you get to places like, you know, go to Alabama and start talking about cannabis. Good luck getting out of Alabama. Um, And so there's a big difference across the whole country. Uh, when I look to Europe, like when I'm looking at um, creating a venture fund to do really deep research on how do we take cannabinoids, the ingredients in cannabis, there's 100 plus of them. How do we do research to figure out, can we um, affect stem cells so that perhaps we can make a curative product for, say, a brain tumor? When I think about doing that work, I don't think about doing it in Canada. I think about doing that in Europe, but I think we can use capital raised in Canada to do that. So it's a good launch pad. Um, what are the 35, 36, 37 million Canadians? I think anybody who's a business person doesn't take the view that it's good to be from Canada is missing the point. Like Canada is not the market. It's a launch pad for the market. And so we have to play that way. So the uh, it's a great, great positioning considering us this Petri dish to the uh, world. I, I, I want to go back a bit in time even before your cannabis days because the, the word that I kept coming to mind when I looked at your resume. I mean, uh, uh, very involved in, in universities, with Carleton University, uh, youth advocacy, technology, entrepreneurship. There seems to be an overriding purpose that you seem to be looking at beyond profit to, to putting a dent in the universe. And I don't think it's, it, it's a narcissist ask. He's just saying, you know, curing that brain tumor or improving the way we educate or, or having youth stand a chance. What, what, what gave you that inner value statement that 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 became something that was your north star yeah it um so obviously if you grow up in uh, if you're fortunate enough to grow up in uh, a good family that helps for sure that was a good grounding and then i uh very randomly unfortunately end up as a participant on a program that the government of canada used to sponsor and should sponsor still called canada world youth 
And the point of that program is it takes people between the ages of 17 and 21. And they take seven Canadians from all different parts of Canada, different economic and uh, urban-rural combinations. They take those seven Canadians and pair them with seven Canadians, in my case, from Sri Lanka. And then we get plunked down, uh, me with my Sri Lankan counterparty, in a home somewhere in Canada, not my parents' home, spend three months learning the community and all of that. So all of a sudden you get culture shock in your own country because you're with this Sri Lankan and you're in another part. Then you go to the Sri Lanka. And he doesn't get to live with his family. He's living with a different family with you. And about six or seven months later, you come out of that. And the effect is for the rest of your life, for example, if you're in a grocery lineup and I see somebody in front of me with something I don't recognize, I'm insanely curious and must know what it is that you're purchasing? How do you cook it? And with some possibility, I may end up at their house eating it. And uh, the effect of that is that where I'm trying to put time and effort is to constantly have youth have exposure to each other so that um, we're curious, not careful. And uh, I think if you're like that, then the whole world's interesting. If you're concerned, if you're more interested in a gun permit than you are what that person has in the vegetable cart ahead of you, um, that fear makes it so you just don't have any willingness to really try new stuff. And so I'm hoping uh, we can keep giving youth exchanges, interaction, because by the time you're about 25, 30, I hate to say it, but like it's pretty hard to amend that uh, interaction style and so that's um, it was pretty formative on me and I spent a lot of time on their board and um, I would say if I'm going to aim a trust at something it's going to be at that. So I'm talking to Bruce Linton one of the uh, the visionaries and uh, entrepreneurs that, uh, that's ever uh, graced Canada We're just talking a little bit about your background and the uh, you know when you're talking about uh, youth and your experience in youth, it sounded, you know, you had a very tactile, you got to meet someone from another country, you got to stay in other homes, you got to go to another country. Do you think that in this world where everything's within arm's reach of desire, that we're losing uh, our curiosities too easily served? We Google it versus what yours was where you had to experience it? There's a little bit of that, you know, and I, I would say that um, part of the reason my kids attended the public school system is the public school system is as close to a global interaction platform as you'll get. You know, I didn't want to put them in a private school, and not that they're bad. I just thought, you know, um, better that they know. Um, so I think there's a bit of the Google part, but I also think um, we we think that we're in a hurry to get somewhere. So like, I meet all these people who are so busy trying to graduate from uh, university by the time they're like 20 or 21. Well, that means you got to work for a long time. Like, I just don't understand where everybody's hurry is to get. To working I think you're more productive of when you get there you've gathered more stuff and so uh, I don't know maybe we should make it almost a mandatory or give an extra credit if people took a gap year and even give them an extra two credits if in the gap year they left the country for not less than four months and it's not that I don't like Canada but um, I think you're a better Canadian if you actually go out and see the world because Canada's filled with the world and you shouldn't be afraid of it it's an interesting perspective. Let's now move back to canopy growth. And I love a quote that I read. You said uh, that canopy growth, it began with an abandoned chocolate factory and a vision. Take us back to just smiling. I wish the audience could see that smile because that's the smile of an entrepreneur that goes back in time. But tell me a little bit about that, what that meant. Well, it's actually, um, it's really boring, to be totally honest, in that um, it's genius marketing that was a chocolate factory because you get to have great lines, right? You know, when you need to tease people to be interested, you could say, I started this pot f factory inside a former chocolate factory and I now know why the Oompa Loompas are so happy, right? <laughs> you had these lines, but um, what it really was, was 
anybody who's just going to start a business, if they don't have the patience to read all of the regulatory frameworks, all the rules, understand as much as they can, they won't start in the right place. And so I spent a lot of time looking at what were the rules going to be, and it was really clear that um, the regulations were going to license not a person, not a corporation, but an address, because an address can't move. You couldn't get a license, say, at one and, uh, under my name, and then move up beside a school and make everybody angry, so it was an address. And then if you think about the fact that it's an address that's licensed, and that because this is new, you know Health Canada is going to regulate it. It's going to cost two, maybe three million bucks just to turn the lights on so that you can have all the labs and the people who do the security and all the overheads necessarily keep Health Canada happy. So if you think about that and you say, well, it's an address, can't move it, um, and it's a couple, maybe a few million bucks to do it, I shouldn't start somewhere small because if I start small, then I'm not going to make enough product to make enough profit to cover my overhead, so I'm always going to be stuck. Um, and so then you say, well, I need a really big building. And now if you re- need a really big building and you have no customers and the sector doesn't really exist, you can't really go get a mortgage for one. So what you got to do is find a really big inexpensive building, which by default means an abandoned building. And so that leads you to a place like this spot in Smith Falls. Then when you get there, you realize, and I almost bought a building in another town that met all those criteria, except um, the municipal bylaws were very clear that if you wanted to do something industrial, it was like, you know, make a leg for a chair. And if you wanted to do something light industrial, it was put the chair together. And if you wanted to do something agricultural, that was in a field or a greenhouse. And they were not going to let you put them together. So and then I had to find a town with all those considerations, including the derelict big building that had bad bylaws, and poorly written, or had contemplated agricultural processes occurring, kind of like making milk to chocolate. And so the town of Smith Falls was eager the building not be knocked down, be used, and they uniformly consented 100% at council to say they intended for cannabis to be grown in that building or their forefathers had. And we're off to the races. But it was really about locking all that stuff together so you didn't have to restart later. You didn't have something too small to generate a sufficient income stream. And it was deemed, I think, by most people who observed the sector, probably the stupidest thing they'd seen. Because who has a 500,000 square foot building as a starter project for a sector that doesn't exist? But worked out okay. So you, you put the intellectual puzzle together, but part of what, every time I've heard you speak and talk, it's the emotional side. You get people to buy in to something that didn't exist, that the possibilities. What can you share with, with the listeners in terms of how do you get, how do you animate yeah. the future in a way that people say, I, I want to join that parade? Um, so I, I think uh, there's two kinds of things you have to have join. You have to have... Um, competent people to fulfill the uh, view of what could happen and you have to have a lot of money and so money uh, there's money sitting everywhere like I, you have no clue how much money is looking around with no idea what they want to do and if there's a good idea presented really fact-based not overly hyped um, a lot of money follows and more money follows money and the next thing you know you raise as we did about six or seven billion dollars um, but the people come in layers as well Right at the beginning, my first year of having the business, one of the criteria for working there was that you would. Like a lot of people were not keen on this and the ones that were keen on that weren't necessarily the most qualified ones. Um, so what you had to decide it was what your theory was and what your rules were. So for example, um, if there wasn't a clear regulatory guideline on how to do something, we asked for one. We wanted more rules. And the reason is that um, people want to trust the exit from prohibition which means everything has to be clear and certain. So we're probably one of the most active rule askers uh, of Health Canada. And I would say we help form the regulatory framework quite a lot because it's evolved a lot. So, you know, people 
kind of are attracted to this idea of a differentiated purpose and that you're being really productive against it and that every day you measure yourself was i productive and then you what we did is we codified that culture of productivity and so we had things like um one of the lines says catch people doing good because at work usually you get caught doing bad and ours was catch people doing good and then what you do is you try to highlight what was good and how you keep moving that up as a a, a view of the right way and we had one said um, get shit done and then it went on to clarify what it meant was that we would sooner make 49% of our decisions could be wrong as long as 51% were correct and whatever we did didn't cause the regulations to be shutting us down, but we should try stuff. You know, better to make a decision and then have to make another decision than to spend the whole day sitting around. And so that kind of culture attracts a bunch of people and people work super hard, uh, long hours all the time. And I don't think most people were stressed out. They were actually enthusiastic um, because they recognized that in the business world, what should be stressful is if you don't have much to do, if the phone's not ringing, because that means you're going to start having to take about half the people and lay them off. Well, that was never a threat when you're going super busy, fast, growing uh, from you know me walking around an empty factory to about 4,500 people in six years. And how do you, you know, as you start looking at massive growth, attracting talent, joint ventures, investing here, deciding where to play in the supply chain, celebrities, did you ever think you bit off more than you could chew? It was weird that all kind of fit together like a bunch of gears, right? Like people say, well, you know, are you doing too many things? I said, will you ever take a watch apart? There's a lot going on inside a watch and it's super small. But if you take any of the parts out and say, I'm not going to do that part, it doesn't work. So to me, like our, our watch was working really well, but it was because we had all the gears moving. And if we needed to um, make that watch a little bit more powerful, a little bigger, you just keep doing it. So, you know, the company got to be in 16 countries 10 locations in Canada was doing everything from animals. But if you looked at it, what was the opportunity? It was from the seed to the scientific endeavors. And if you said, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do too much with the science part. Well, that means in about two or three years, you're not in the core of that business. So you had to keep moving up. Um, no, it was, um, I don't think we had too much on the go. I would say that uh, probably the single biggest thing we had to try and explain was you might go to a meeting with um, big money, you know, pick a Fidelity or a BlackRock. They had no idea who to bring to the meeting. Should I bring my ag guy? Should I bring my science lady? Should I bring my um, special situations? Like they just didn't know who would cover us because there's no other business on the planet that really goes from a seed to doing clinical phase three trials. But that makes a lot of people nervous because it seems like the, you know, the easy pat answer for a lot of people is focus, focus, focus. <laughs> and you were going and saying, I mean, I saw another one of your articles where you said, we have a chance to be the Amazon of our industry. Why would we ever not go for that? Yeah. Um, you know, the focus, 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 I think is, it's a nice thing to say, but um, if you narrow your focus too early, uh, then people in about two years will say, but why did you disappear? And so this is, you know, you, oh, I just have a son who's, uh, as of uh, two Fridays ago, a full-time, officially good driver. He's got his license, full license. And I think the key thing that we had to talk to him about all the time was be aware of your surroundings. Because um, if you're going down the road at like 70 miles an hour, you're probably mainly looking ahead. But if you're coming to an intersection, you might be looking all around. And in building a business, you got to be aware of your surroundings and when they change capital markets change um ip opportunities change where we were is we were just very uh, attuned to our surroundings and the company kept constantly evolving as the sector was evolving and maybe we we're causing it to evolve uh, if you stayed on one theme and became the best farmer that would be quite 
unfortunate already today. You, a lot of the industry seemed to be legitimized when you brought in uh, Constellation Brands and they, they came in with a massive investment. And you know, it, it, you always have that, and very often in business, you have that clash of cultures where you have the entrepreneur that, uh, that, that moves at uh, the speed of an entrepreneur with a big organization. How were the early days of that relationship? So um, they, they did it in two tranches, right? Uh, so for about a year, they had about uh, 245 million bucks in us and another 245 million bucks that they could invest, which, you know, there was a point in time where almost $500 million was considered a fairly substantial investment because the company was only four or three and a half years old when they decided to do that. And that year went quite smoothly. We used the resources because they, we were only about, you know, we were uh, nine, we were not at that big threshold level. We did, in their books, we didn't really impact them. Your little rounding error. Right, but then when they bought more, so they bought a year after the first part, they uh, bought another five billion, so a little bit more than 10 times more for um, really instead of 19%, almost 20%, which they got for the first 500 million, they got 17%. Now, that was a very good deal uh, for us, but it meant that we show up in their books as a real thing. And the effect of that is, is it's, I wouldn't even say big company culture or anything, it's essentially accounting and what happens is when um, you're a startup, you're a tech company, you live on something called adjusted EBITDA. Google it, it's a bit boring, but essentially what it says is that when you're running your business, all you really care about is the cash you use. You don't worry about all these funny accounting things that are non-cash affecting. So for example, um, if you came to work for us in um, a startup, a tech company, I'll give you stock. And if the stock goes up, doubles, it looks like the company's made a loss because you are now an owner for that gain that you didn't pay for. But in the tech world, you think that's terrific. Everybody's happy it's going up. When you're a big company, that looks like a bad thing because on when you're reporting there, you're talking about earnings per share. And now it looks like you have more shares, so your earnings go down. So you say, God, that's awful. So that's just one topic where the conversations have nothing in common between a high growth kind of tech company mm-hmm and uh, a big slow growth, high profit company. And then you run down the roster, it's things like, uh, well, I would like to build every building I need because I need it fast and I need it where I want it and I need it done the things that I need. So if I need a, an extraction facility, there are no extraction facilities, I can't borrow one. Where in the big company, earnings per share, they like to pay a lease, mm-hmm. keep all the cash, give dividends. And so there's, just, uh, there's a never ending list of difference of opinions based on accounting, which have really no resolution unless you amend the behavior of one of the companies. So the so it I mean that ended with the sense that you know they said you you parted ways and you came out that first day and said no I was terminated, and um, it it seemed to really rattle the industry. And what I was very impressed with because I've been an entrepreneur is how many employees uh, absolutely. Uh, stood up for what you meant for that company, that this wasn't, that, that, you know, and very vocal and saying this is one of the great mistakes that, you, that what you, you were just beginning to build at Amazon. How did you deal with that sense of losing control of something that was still in its infancy? Well, you know, it's, um, I would say that the last three or four months you really work through, it's kind of like, it's not the first time uh, I've been terminated for being the entrepreneur with the VC guys running it, but this was a bigger one and more fun. Uh, and so what it ends up being is it's a bit of a trauma, right? It's a bit of like a, uh, a relationship break, but from a big crowd. And then, you know, you move through and you get busy on other stuff. But um, I thought it was best uh, for me and the company 
that I actually be very clear that I was not retiring. Um, but out of the media, my point was to try and elevate both Canopy's position and clarity of purpose and that I was actively looking for more things to do. And uh, it, I think it worked. I had like over 200 inbounds from companies or people who thought they had a company that I should be involved with. And obviously you can't do that. You can't help everybody. Um, and I think um, probably there should be a zillion people who want the job at Canopy. And so I'm hopeful they'll get somebody soon because uh, the only stress ongoing for the people who work there is the absence of a leader. A leader doesn't have to be me, but they do need a leader. And so hopefully they'll resolve that uh, shortly because uh, most people want to go to some place that they are happy to explain to their friends and family what they do. And they'd like to feel good about the person leading it so they can say, um, I'm doing this and I know I don't have to worry about the other stuff because this person's in charge and they're good for these reasons. So if I'm an employee and I joined a company that you said, you know, we worked hard, but it never felt like work. We had a greater sense of purpose. We had the ability to act with Caesar speed. And, and then that culture shifts because a new leader yeah. comes in and says, now it's about our rules and dividends and stuff. How do you, as an employee, if you were an employee, what, what, what do you would your advice be just stay there or find the next tightrope for you to climb on that, that replicates what you had? Well, and I'm not it's, suggesting no, it's, you tell people to really, leave Canopy, yeah, but I'm just saying in general. Really, it's a really a tough thing because for a lot of people, um, it's the best job they've ever had at the right location where they live. And so um, this change will be a change, but that's the best job at the best location. They should keep going. I think the risk is with, um, you know, the person who started on July 4th had no clue what it was like when I was running the place so it'll be fine and so I think what you'll find is that um, there'll be some people who fall off the bus there'll be some changes but really um, the place is so well organized in terms of our standard operating procedures our uh, sort of plan for the next three years and what was happening globally it's not uh, one person it's like everybody there's a you know I see a lot of the folks they have um, they're progressing against plan and it may be with different measures or different board involvement, but um, it feels like um, did a good job of making sure people understood where we were going and they're still going. So I want to, before I, I, I finish with some final questions, uh, we were talking on stage at a conference and you, you made me smile when you talked about the post office. Share, share with our audience your, uh, how you fell in love with, as you say, the, the most expensive project you've ever been part yeah. of. Well, so um, anybody who's been to Toronto knows that Queen's Park has this very nice kind of reddish stone, very deep window sills made out of the stone. Um, there was an architect and uh, that person was uh, assigned to look after designing 10 post offices that also acted as custom offices and um, in some places an armory across the country and they were built in the late uh, like 1880s, 1890s. What, they were built in places that were important at that time. Cambridge, Belleville, Smith Falls and the one in Smith Falls uh, had been falling in quite a lot of disrepair because it had uh, had a funny history it had been that stuff that I described it got purchased by some nuns they were running a high school in it and they weren't making enough money so they subleased the basement out the basement was a speakeasy basically an unlicensed bar with nuns in a high school above it it was wild and then um, it had really fallen on hard times and the building was in pretty bad shape and I kept driving by thinking it's gorgeous, they should fix it. I ended up standing across the street from it waiting for Snoop Dogg to arrive for a, a concert and a dinner. Mayor's standing there beside me, you're chit-chatting because Snoop's late. The next thing you know, I know who owns it. I know he has a, sort of there's an opportunity to buy it from him for a variety of reasons. I call him 
now I got the building. The hell am I done? And so instead of doing a plan, uh, I simply looked at it and said I want it to be exactly what it was historically, but I want it to stand for another 100 plus years. So I want to upgrade, rip every wire out, every bit of plumbing out, all the heating and cooling, all the windows, re-put all the cement between the stones. And uh, it's a fascinating project because when it's done, my goal is that it is the most specifically recognized building in Smith Falls that people pass by because they're in the core. And that when they see it from what it was to what it is, that um, there's a real uptick happening in the town and it just sort of is more fuel that people think, Got to mow the lawn, got to paint the porch, whatever, because this was, the core was rotten and now the core is really good. What are you going to do with the building? So it's going to have, um, I want a bar in the basement, so I've fitted up for a bar. Um, it's going to have like a little, you're going to go down the stairs to where the speakeasy is. So it was a speakeasy, then it was empty for four years, then it became Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's just, to me, it's, it's, it's perfect. So I'm going to open a bar in there and it's going to have one of those doors with a little slidey thing and it's going to have a secret password, hi. <laughs> and um, on the first floor, it's going to be like a WeWork space, but... Um, it's enabling people who want to support and be involved with Canopy to actually have transitional offices because there's so many places that come to do research, and they will for the next decade. And then the second floor has a handful of apartments, which um, I have a problem. More people want to rent them than I can. And the top floor is this about 3,000, 3,200 square foot amazing apartment. And uh, I'm hopeful that um, some of the execs from Canopy will want to use it because if you're going to go and work with the place, you should be as close as you can to the factory operations of an op- uh, of a company are where everything is either learned or lost. And so you need to be at the operating platform, which is really consolidated for all the advanced work in Smith Falls. So the I guess my final question, uh, Bruce, is what's next? Because I, as you said, you had 200, 200 offers come in your inbox. Yeah. Have you really got a sense of what the next tightrope you're going to be on? Yeah, so it, cannabis is measured in versions. So right now when we make cool new products in Canada, that's called 2.0. Mm-hmm. So they'll come out in January. When they start reading data, which is what uh, researchers do when they've run a clinical trial, they say, well, it worked 87% of the time. When it starts to be able to make claims on how come it makes you sleep better, grandma and grandpa stay at a long-term care facility better, that's called 3.0 because you're actually having evidence to why you take it and how you take it. 4.0, for me, is when you use uh, researchers out of Denmark and Czech Republic to play around with rare cannabinoids to see if on a stem cell research basis, for example, maybe they can actually cause tumors to be diminished. And so um, that's the way out part for me. So I've got a venture capital fund that's 100 million euros we're forming, uh, based in Luxembourg, will operate out of Paris, has a, a whole array of really interesting PhDs who've been VCs in other places who want to do this. And then you move down that from uh, doing work with the psychedelics. So I have a company called MindMed that um, I invest in, own about 10% of that's doing how do we help people use these in the right way so they actually get clinical. Um, Dog care. So there's this one called Better uh, Choice, BTTR Choice, which has this great line of various dog foods. But now we're overlaying on top is what dosage of cannabinoids should you use for what indications for your dogs? And then we use that research to think about other animals that are mammals. And then you get to things like... um, Gage, which is a Michigan-based single-state operator that, in my opinion, will be the dominant one in Michigan. And Michigan's a very interesting thing because it's very regulated. 2020, it's going to be medical and rec. It's a high-consumption state where there are not big illegal operations compared to, say, California. So I want to see how that works. And then um, a couple of brand plays. Like um, most of the time you go into dispensaries across America, you can see a lot of the same products, but they can't cross state lines. So what you're moving across state lines are the brands. 
And so there's a company called Slang, which has a huge portfolio of great brands that sell like crazy, and a smaller company called DNA Genetics. And so all of those guys kind of fit together in my current uh, activity list. And it works well because what I do is I spend uh, Monday to go on the calls for the management teams, hear what's going on. And then when stuff goes wrong, they call me. If we have a prospect that we think we should work on, um, maybe to acquire or something, then I help out. But um, it's kind of like you invest and get a part-time job, and the part-time jobs get pretty busy. That's fantastic. So I was with Bruce Linton today, and uh, anything else that I missed? I think those are good ones. Fantastic, and thank you so much for joining me, Bruce Linton, and we will read about him for a century to come. <laughs> thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you. So what are the three things I learned from Bruce Linton? Number one, instincts matter most. And he has extraordinary instincts. He sees and feels and tastes and touches. He takes in the world around him. He sees opportunity where the herd hasn't traveled. Bruce looks beyond resumes when he's hiring and, and, and focuses on attributes. He wants talent that can think, feel, and act. Second, he's an incubator innovator. Bruce is known as a bold entrepreneur, the, the, someone who strikes at every opportunity. Well, I've interviewed him on stage and in this podcast, and I find him very different. Bruce has incredible purpose. He identifies a desired outcome. He sees where he wants to be, and then he goes finds the people, products, and businesses that will get them there. The final thing is impression. What impressed me most about Bruce Linton is he has a purpose greater than profits. He demands that the businesses that he's part of makes a positive impression on people's lives and the communities where they locate. He rarely talks about profits. He talks about the possibilities of medical cannabis. His shoulders come back and his eyes twinkle. He talks about curing or living better or possibilities. When he talks about his employees, it's not about transactional work. It's about transformative and creating a culture of pursuit. And when he talks about the communities that they're going to be investing in, it's about bringing back jobs and creating a positive presence and insisting that his, his top leaders live at where the soul of the organization is, where the product is made. Bruce Linton, one that matters. You've been listening to Chatter That Matters. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with Tony on Twitter at Tony Chapman, through LinkedIn at Tony Chapman Reactions, or visit his website, TonyChapmanReactions.com. Chatter That Matters is produced by Tony Chapman Reactions and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.